Because here at Calvary Chapel, we teach verse by verse, chapter by chapter, book by book. And we're in the book of Exodus, and we're going to pick back up right where we left off last week, at chapter 13. Exodus chapter 13. Now, after that shocking, probably horrifying, terrible moment, that night in Egypt, when there was widespread death of the firstborn from the tenth plague, Pharaoh and the Egyptian people propelled, forced out the Hebrew people, the Israel's, Israelites, out of Egypt as God predicted would happen. God said it was going to happen, and it happened. And as God had predicted, the Egyptians not only would be sending out the Hebrew uh, people, but they would send them out with all the provisions they would need in their journey as they head to the promised land. They freely gave them. God changed their heart to put on their hearts to give them their gold, to give them their silver, to give them clothing, to give them livestock, give them the jewels, all the jewels, anything they needed and they wanted, they could ask for. The Egyptian people gave it to the Hebrew people and they were loaded up and ready to go. But we will see God's people will not see the end of the chasing of their enemy against them. We will see as we continue in the book of Exodus that Pharaoh will harden his heart once again and he will bring his army against God's people. And we will see that, not this week. <laughs> this week we're going to take just chapter 13. But we saw in Exodus chapter 12 verse 37. It said that the children of Israel would journey from Ramses, which is a particular, probably the largest city in within the Goshen Valley where the Hebrew people were concentrated at, would move from Ramses to move to their first campsite. Their first campsite spot, Saldsukkah, their first stop. And now on this trip, as a journey is an exciting new journey for the people of, of, of Israel because they had never left Egypt. And they're now going to a land in, called the land of Canaan or the promised land that God had told them their forefathers that this would happen. And it's been 430 years. So there's a generation upon generation of people that are just, it was just passed down. And now they're actually going to live out what God had promised 430 years prior. Amazing. And so we're on this exciting new journey from Egypt to the promised land. And it would bring about, a, you know, if you look at the map and you just look and draw a straight line from where they're at to the promised land, Canaan, and it's as a uh, crow's fly, it's just a 10-day journey. That's all it would be. But God had a purpose to actually take the people through this journey over one year. Not 10 days, but a one-year journey. And as he takes them, and they were planning on this, this, these multi-campsite stops for the, for the Israelites, they were going to go from campsite to campsite during this period of time. They're going to take seven specific campsite stops. 
as their way to the, to the promised land. And as he ta- they take these seven stops, God uses each of those steps in the journey and each of those stops to teach his people something very specific. Now, why would he do this? It's because it's one thing for God to get his people out of Egypt. And as miraculous as that is, to free them from slavery, free them from the bondage of the Egyptian bondage. That's one thing. But it's quite another to get Egypt, to get the the mindset of Egypt, the the culture, the philosophy, and the way you think of type of Egypt, to get that out of his people. When God does a work in someone's life, he will free you from your sins, from your bondage, from your slavery of your sin. But then he puts you on a journey of transforming your mind and changing you by the the word of God to get the worldliness out of you, his child. It's a journey. Egypt is seen in the scripture as a picture of the world. And when we are saved, the Lord took us out of the world. And as we continue to follow the Lord, he takes the world out of us through the journey of life that God has planned for you. He He does this while he prepares a place in heaven for you as a child of God. But he also prepares us for the place where he's taking us, which is in heaven. Remember, this place, this what we call earth, is a vacation gone bad. It's one of those campsite trips. You're like, oh, I was looking all summer long to a campsite. Oh, we picked up the campsite. It's going to be perfect. It's going to be great. We've got the s'mores. Some of us need to blow up mattress. <laughs> the kids are old enough so we don't have to take them out to the bathroom in the middle of the night. You know, all these things we've been camping before. But then it rains. And the storms come, and your tent gets flooded. And the bugs are absolutely ravaging you. And the squirrels are having a feast on everything you brought. And you thought that this is hell, right? But see, what we will see is that God is going to remind his people, and he reminds us as well as we read this. Earth is not our heaven, it's not our heaven, it's not our home, it's just, we're sojourners. We're just sojourning, just like the Israelites, through a desert experience, being prepared to go home to heaven, to a place that he says, he promises what? I'm going, Jesus says, I'm going to go to heaven and prepare a place for you. He was specific, wasn't he? You. Because he loves you. Because he loves you. And that's fact. That's what the Lord said. And so we see here that we must remember that we must understand that life is be a series of tests through circumstances in life. And if we don't get the, that God is in control of our life, if we don't really understand that as a child of God, that he is in control of your life, then what's going to happen is there's going to be this constant confusion. 
this constant push and pull that's going to say, I don't know what's happening in life, and I don't know what's going to happen to me, and I'm uncertain, and I'm, oh, what's this going to be? And it's going to bring about anxiety and then lead to depression in people's lives that we're seeing all, all around today. There's this, 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 this depressing wonder all the time. What is this all about? Why is this happening? What on earth is going on? Is everyone losing their minds? And Am I losing my mind? What's happening to me? What will happen to me? And you'll find yourself so discouraged. You'll find yourself into a point where you'll be so disoriented and so defeated. And then Fearfulness will set into your life. And you have to understand as a child of God, fear is not of God. So when you get to that point where you're like, I'm fearful. I don't know if I have enough toilet paper and I'm going to have to go rush. Now, don't get me wrong. You might be practical and say you may not have any rolls on. I understand that. But that's wisdom, isn't it? You look and say, sweetheart, do we have enough rolls of toilet paper on the thing? Because I, th I hear there's a stampede going on outside. I don't know why, but there's a stampede going on. How many rolls do we have? Will that last us over the next month or so? Let's use wisdom, next month or two months. Not next year, okay? And this is not a money-making moment for you either. This is not an entrepreneurial, I'm an entrepreneurial, now let me go buy some toilet paper and sell it five, four times the more cost online. See, that's not a, the way a child of God thinks. If anything, we think of, how can I have extra to help someone who's in need? That's how we think. Do you see the subtleness? And we, give, we freely give. See, as brothers and sisters, I want to encourage you, stay in tune with it. There's some people who could not come here today. Why? Because they were using wisdom and know that at their age it's not wise because they know that their body's fragile at this point post-surgery or they're pregnant, or they, whatever it may be, they may actually have a cold, a flu. Do you know that that happens every year, right? And they use wisdom. Let us reach out to them. Let us encourage our brothers and sisters through this time of suffering that they may be going through. Because it, some people are choosing out of fear to isolate. And that is not a good thing, you know that. Because when you isolate yourself, that it's not of the Lord isolating you. You're isolating yourself, or someone's fearfully put it. You're vulnerable to attacks by the enemy. Are you with me? So show love. Send a card. Make the phone call. Use the text. Send whatever media connection you have. Even if you need to, go over and meet with them and bring them a meal. Whatever the Lord puts on your heart, serve the body. Amen? Because people are truly We see this group of people, of two to three million people, are camping. We see them going to Sekoth. We call, I call it the tent city here. And they could have come here, and it's important to understand this is a tent city because it's temporary for God's people. Because that's not their home in Sekoth. Their home wasn't in Ramses, in the Goshen Valley. It's not in Sekoth. And it won't be in the next six campsites they stop. The, their home is where? The Promised Land in Canaan. And so this tent city is just temporary stops for his people as God teaches them on their way. And so in Exodus chapter 13, verse 1, we're finally getting to our scripture here. 
Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Consecrate to me all the firstborn, whatever opens the womb among the children of Israel, both of man and beast, it is mine. Make sure you make note of this. The word consecrate or consecrate to me means to sacrifice or to consider as belonging to God. And in the Pentateuch, you can see all both of those scenarios played out in the scriptures there. That it can be a sacrifice, this consecration to me, or it could be just the fact that it consider this is of mine. This is mine right here. And God says right there at the end of verse 2, it is mine. He doesn't make any question for you and I when it comes to his provision and what you are to give from the first fruits. And from what he's given you, you are to give back the first part of that to him. Why? Because you feel like it? No. It is because it's his. And that settles it. And you gladly and you freely and lovingly want to give it back to God because you recognize what? That he has given you so much. So we see here in the scriptures here, as the Lord speaks to Moses, he says, concentrate to me two things. The firstborn of both man and beast. It's like a Sabbath day. It's like the first fruit of the crops. It's the, the pledge of dedication of the whole nation to give this to God because this is God's. That's why he says it's mine. And he says it for three reasons why he says it's mine. First, he says because Israel was God's firstborn. Remember that in Exodus chapter 4 verse 22? The reason why it's his is because it's his, the, his people was his people. It was like his firstborn. So of course you're going to give back to him. Second is because the firstborn was thought to be the best, and the best was always given to God. You never give the hand-me-down, hand-me-down to hand-me-downs to give to God. You would never sit there and say, oh, honey, what are we going to do this? It's kind of clogging up our, uh, our, our closets. It's, it's kind of filling up our garage here. This is this stuff we haven't seen or played with and dust it off and clean it up. What are we going to do with it? I don't want to take it to the garbage. That's eh, too much of a hassle. Oh, we'll give it to the church. Let me reassure you, God doesn't want your junk. He wants your best. He wants you to give you the, the new stuff. Don't give the junk. If it, you're not going to use it, you think God's going to use it for his people? No, we're not going to use it for his people. He's asking you to give the first fruits to him, the best. The crops, when they came out, they always seen the, the first portion uh, was always the best crops. That's they gave to the Lord. They didn't wait until, mm, there's, wait until maybe the fourth and fifth cutting. Maybe there will be something left to give to God. No, that's not how God sees it. That's not how we as God's people see that. We give up front. We give to God freely up front. Why? Because it's his money. It's his crops. It's his stuff. It's, it's his. And we freely give it to him in a, a form of worship. And finally, right, the reason why he calls it mine is because it's, it's a reminder to all the generations when God redeemed Israel, his firstborn from Egypt. Because Israel was saved through the destruction of Egypt's firstborn, remember? 
And now they are required to dedicate their own firstborn as a constant memorial of their deliverance from that death. He says, it's mine. These firstborn are mine because I did not take their lives. I passed over them to preserve them and preserve you. Now you are to give them back. What does it mean to give them back? What he means here is God's intent was that the firstborn son of every family would be the priesthood. They would be in the ministry full time serving God. That's how God designed it. Now, what's interesting and what sadly happens is we know as this continues with the story, you remember as they continue through the journey and, the, and they get to the, 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 the base of the mountain, right, Mount Sinai, what happened? They took all that gold and stuff and they melted it down and turned it into what? A gold calf, if you remember. And what did they do with that gold calf? They worshipped. They idolatry. At that point right there in the story, Guess what happened when God said to all the tribes, you need to repent and change and acknowledge, you need to rectify this situation that's going on. You know there was only one tribe that actually rectified the situation, and that tribe was the tribe of Levi. That is why only priests could come from the tribe of Levi going forward. But that was not what God intended in the beginning. God said every family would serve God in and around for the ministry. Everyone. But sin hindered that. And so in verse 3, and Moses said to the people, God spoke to Moses. Now Moses, the leader, is going to speak to the people. He says, remember this day in which you went out of Egypt and out of the house of bondage. For by strength of hand, the Lord brought you out of this place. No leavened bread shall be eaten. On this day, you are going out in the month of Abib. Remember, a month of Abib is the spiritual calendar, which is the month of April. So the month of April is, uh, is when they're supposed to hold this, uh, uh, the Passover and the Unleavened Bread Festival. And then what happens? And it shall be when the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Amorites and the Hittites and the Jebusites, which he swore to your fathers to give you a land flowing with milk and honey, that you shall keep this service. What service? Passover. In this month, a bit. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread, and on the seventh day there shall be a feast to the Lord. Unleavened bread shall be eaten seven days, and no, uh, no leavened bread shall be seen among you, nor shall leaven be among you in all your quarters. So they're having a party called Passover. They're celebrating what God has done, and they've delivered them and preserved them by the blood of the Lamb. And by that celebration, they're now celebrating Passover every year. They're supposed to do it on the month of Abib, which is April. And they're to celebrate. And they're to then celebrate the unleavened bread feast for seven days. And have another feast at the end of the seven days. So it's a seven-day party that is going on here. It's not seven days of mourning. It's not seven days of weeping and crying. It's seven days of praising and worshiping God of what he has done and freeing them from captivity. Amen? So when we see these things and that 
even in Jewish people today celebrate these things. And if we look, remember the day of your salvation. Do you rejoice as much today about your deliverance from your sin and being forgiven of your sin as it was the day when you gave your life to Jesus and became born again? You should. Every day should be a praising and worshiping God because he has set you free from captivity. But they were to do this. This walk was, as we see here during this period of time, there was to be unleavened bread. Remember, unleavened means absence of uh, yeast, and yeast represents in the scriptures what? Sin. So they were to practice by having no leaven, no yeast in their bread whatsoever, to show a walk of purity before the Lord, and they celebrate that during that period of, of that seven days. Seven days of Seven days of what? Seven means in the scripture, completion. Right? So he, God has helping them to understand and remember this walk in purity before the Lord. Following the Lord is what they're to do after the blood deliverance that God has provided. The sacrifice, the, the Lamb of God that needed to sac be sacrificed for the Passover. And for you and I, it's the Lamb of God, Jesus himself, who was the sacrifice, the blood sacrifice on the cross for your sins and my sins. That it gives us the ability to be set free for those who believe. And can now celebrate and walk in purity before the Lord. Amen? Now... Verse 8, and you shall tell your son. We're going to see verses 8 through 10 here that God is telling Moses, and Moses is now telling the people, remember, tell your children what has happened over the years. You must tell your children. You must pass it on generation upon generation, or it's going to get lost, and this is not a good thing for the, uh, for the nation. So it says right here, and you shall tell your son in that day, saying, this is done because of what the Lord did for me when I came up from Egypt. Now, I love this because the Lord showed me the son that he's talking to, I believe, is the son that has been what? Has been given over to the Lord, given over to the firstborn son in that family. The son is going to turn to death. What's going on here? Why am I the one that has to be dedicated over here to the, to the, to the, to the people here? Why, why isn't my brothers or why isn't my sisters or why isn't everyone else dedicated? And he's saying, remember, son, you are what God showed as, as a, a sign or a remembrance for the time to come that this was done because of the fact that the Lord did for me, set me free. You, it's, it's passed down from generation upon generation for you to remember what God has done. So you will never forget that. And it shall be assigned to you in your hand. And as a memorial between your eyes, that the Lord's law may be in your mouth. For with a strong hand, the Lord has brought you out of Egypt. You shall therefore keep the, this ordinance in its season from year to year. So God wanted the deliverance from Egypt to be constantly at hand and before their eyes at all times so they'll never forget. Now what's interesting is the Orthodox Jews and the Jews at the time took on upon themselves from this scripture and also in Deuteronomy 
Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 through 9, and Deuteronomy chapter 11. So chapter 6 and chapter 11, uh, we see that the Jews use this passages to institute the practice of wearing the phylacteries. Phylacteries were these small little boxes. They're black boxes, and they would write scripture on the parchment, and they'd fold them up and put them in the little boxes, and then the boxes were then wrapped by these leather straps. Now, when we went to Israel, you'll see it still today. You'll see them coming down, those Orthodox Jews, and the young and old, and you'll have these little boxes, and they'll be on their hand, and they'd be wrapped, and the wrap would all come all the way up through the arm. And they would go to the, the wall, and they'd be praying, or they'd be out there praying among the people. Some would have a box or multiple boxes, and it would be like a unicorn, kind of like, and it would be wrapped around their head, and they would be there. And in, they literally took the scriptures literally, but that wasn't what God intended. It was a symbolic form, uh, form of saying, you must, whatever you put your hand to, think about God and what God's word says about this. If you are looking at anything, are you seeing anything, are you watching anything, whatever your eyes are focused on, keep God in the forefront of all things you do and see. Very important, and we agree with that, right? As you follow the Lord, what do you do? Whatever you put your hand to, whatever you're watching and looking to do, make sure it's of God and it's in line with the scriptures. Totally got that. But the, they take it a little further and they create these little boxes and put the scriptures in to draw attention to themselves. And we know this for a fact because Jesus himself in Matthew 23, verse 5, we see Jesus condemned the abuse of the wearing of the phylacteries among the Pharisees, the Jewish leaders, remember? Because they made their phylactery boxes bigger and showy as a display supposing a greater spirituality than other people. And Jesus, <laughs> what are you doing? That is not how it works. Now, if this was really literal, if God said you're supposed to put these little boxes on your hand and on your forehead, if that was true, take note in verse 9 what God says right there. The Lord's law may be in your mouth. So the question is, if you have phylactery boxes on your hand, and they're strapped to your forehead, then open up your mouth because I should see a box in your mouth as well. But it's amazing they don't do that because it wasn't literal. It was a metaphor. It was a picture to remind them of what they do, what they say, and what they, what they see and what they say is very important to what God wants them to say. Keep his word on the lips on the tips of your tongue and coming from the heart, right? What comes from the heart is, or what comes out of the mouth is from the heart. And we want the word of God to be etched onto our heart. So remember how Satan can work and do certain things to cause problems. It takes some things of what God says and twists them and you can see it morphed. But notice here, that in end times, there will be a satanic imitation of the same practice that the Orthodox Jews do today with these phylacteries. The Antichrist will be applied and will tell everyone you must apply a mark on your hand or your forehead for all to be able to follow him. And that is seen in Revelation 13, 16. 
So there's nothing <laughs> that Satan doesn't take and twist, and you can see the connections that goes on. But what is it that you and I, what, is the, what are we doing with our hands that God's called us to do? What are you watching and seeing and absorbing into your brain through your eyes? What is coming out of your mouth and what are you saying? Does it honor and please and bless God? That we must take account for every single day as we follow the Lord. Verse 11, And it shall be when the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites as he swore to you and your fathers and gives to it to you that you shall set apart to the Lord all that open the womb. That is, every firstborn that comes from an animal which you have, the males shall be the Lord's. So the law of, of this dedicating of the firstborn to God that we see here in verses 1-2 of, of chapter 13 was only to be taking effect at a certain time. It wasn't to take place. This, this, this directive, this, this commandment wasn't to be taken uh, effect during the time they're sojourning in the wilderness. But once they got to the promised land, that is when they're to bring this about. When they get to the land of the Canaanites, that is when they're supposed to take effect where the firstborn is to be given to the work of God here. And the reason why, if you keep in mind, is you're traveling. Right? As you're traveling, you're going from campsite to campsite, you can't forget where you came from. You can't forget where you're going from. Right? It's, it's a constant reminder. But the challenge happens, and God knew it would be a challenge, once they got to the promised land, the land of the Canaanites. Then they'd get settled in, they'd be finally fine, come, and they're at home, they will forget where they came from. Because they're so, be so consumed of where they are today. And so let that be a warning for you and I. That God has delivered you from bondage. He delivered you from your past. Now as you go into the future and when God takes you and puts you in a position where you may find yourself today. Where you're comfortable, you're blessed, you're serving God, you love God. But all of a sudden it can fade. And you, get, you don't rely upon God anymore because you've got everything all dialed in. It's all kind of routine and things are just kind of going as you're supposed to. And you can forget where God delivered you from. That God has saved you from. You forget the day of your salvation. You must, and I must at times go back and say, God, I remember where you have taken me from. It's not good where I came from. I don't want to ever think my past that you delivered me from was somehow good. And keep this in mind, as we continue in the book of Exodus, the people will start doing this in the desert as they get closer to the promised land, don't they? They go, Oh, we want to go back to Egypt because that's where they had food and water. And we really kind of like, they forgot they were slaves and in bondage and being beaten and killed. And how quickly that can happen to us. What our sin was doing to us when God freed us from it. But notice here in verse 13. But every firstborn of a donkey you shall redeem with a lamb. And if you will not redeem it, then you shall break its neck, and all the firstborn of man among your sons shall be redeemed. So we see here, if you have a donkey, a donkey was an unclean animal and could not be sacrificed or give to God, you had to have a substitute for that uncleanliness with a lamb, which was a clean animal. 
And so make note here, this firstborn was an unacceptable sacrifice, regardless of what you think is good or not good to give God. He says a donkey was not clean. So they had to redeem it with a lamb. And the firstborn of man had to be redeemed by by money. As as we see, and substitute was, was the money here. So the only way a donkey could live was if a lamb was slain for it. If it wasn't, then the neck had to be broken. And this is a great analogy. This analogy, this analogy picked for us, is, it applies to us. When you hear the lamb, you know the lamb is speaking of who? Jesus. So if the lamb here is, is the substitute for the donkey, the unclean animal, if the lamb is Jesus... Who's the donkey in our analogy today? You and me. We're the donkey. Why is that important? Well, because if you look at that, the fact that Jesus is the substitute, the lamb, then that lamb was substitute or to take to keep the donkey alive. But if we see the donkey noted here, in the Old Testament, we see about uh, 67 times and 68 times we see in the Old Testament alone the, the donkey being referred to. And if you look at each of those occasions of the donkey, it leads to one of the last verses in the Old Testament about the donkey. And I will draw your attention to Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just in having salvation, lowly and riding on a donkey, a colt, a foal of a donkey. Why is that passage from the prophet Zechariah uh, uh, so important? Because it will bring your attention to Matthew chapter 21, verses 1 through 4, during that week when Jesus was coming into Jerusalem and going to Calvary, he chose what? He chose a donkey. It says, now when he, they, they drew near Jerusalem and came to Bethanage at the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples. And he said to them, what? He said, to go into the village opposite you. And immediately you will find a donkey tied, a colt with her. Loose them and bring them to me. And if anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord has need of them, and immediately he will send them. And all this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet Zechariah. The fulfillment of prophecy. That the Messiah would come in on a donkey. Why is that significant? Because most were looking for Jesus to be king and to overthrow the leaders of the government at that time. Jesus could have chosen, like Alexander the Great or any big uh, emperor, and come in on a big black stallion and just come in pomp and circumstance and take over. But he didn't. He could have been like the Roman leaders of the big, beautiful white horses, and they were coming in in such a grand parade of taking over. But he didn't choose that. He chose a donkey, a simple, humble donkey, to come in, to ride in, as the King of kings and Lord of lords. Amen? But why is that connecting to you and I? 
Because Jesus wants to come and enter our city, your city, your county, your workplace, your neighborhood, your family. Wherever God has you, he wants to come into those places on you. And use you to enter in those places and to reveal himself as the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Amen? But you may say, you don't understand, Pastor. I, am, I don't have anything. I don't know anything. I can't do anything. I can't do this. I can't. Do. You're sounding more like Moses. You know what I'm saying? I can't talk. I can't speak well. I can't. I'm just a donkey. And God says, perfect. That's exactly who I want to use to do my work in and through people. I want to use a donkey like you. You know why? Because the scripture is so beautiful here. 1 Corinthians 1.27 That he uses the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things that are mighty. God wants to use the foolish and the weak because then he is what? Lifted up and glorified because everyone knows it must be God doing the work through your life because they know who you and I am. We're just donkeys. Amen? I love that. It gives me hope. Because I know God is doing the work. If we just let him, if we follow the Lord. Verse 14, so it came, it shall be. When your son asks you in time to come, saying, what is this that you shall say to him? By strength of hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. And it came to pass when Pharaoh was stubborn, about letting us go, that the Lord killed all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both the firstborn of man and the firstborn of the beast. Therefore I sacrifice to the Lord all males that open the womb, but all the firstborn of my sons I redeem. And it shall be as a sign in your hand and in your frontlets between your eyes, for by strength of hand the Lord brought us out of Egypt." So they're reminding that we must practice what God has asked us to do. That this practice of dedicating the firstborn to God would be a reminder through this ritual of God's great work and strong power for Israel. Because Israel, the people, needed a reminder of the mighty hand of God. And the reminder of what God's plan is. It's got to be constantly reminding because we forget. And then we see in verse 17, then it came to pass. I love, we've seen that throughout the scripture so far in, in Exodus a lot, right? And it came to pass. And it came to pass. And it came to pass. And he, I, I had to be reminded this week, if something hasn't been done yet, there's going to be a time it will come to pass. It, then it came to pass. Then it came to pass. It's going to come. Because God said it's going to happen. It's going to happen. I just have to be patient, right? We just have to be patient. Because he said something that was going to happen, we know it's going to come to pass. And when Pharaoh had let the people go, that God did not 
lead them by way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near. For God said, lest perhaps the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. So we see that they're starting to journey. And you're sitting there and going, okay, where, they don't know where Canaan, Canaanite's uh, land is. They didn't know where Canaan is or where the promised land is. They're just following the Lord. And as they're following the Lord, we see that it came to pass that God did not lead his people by the way, the direct way, the simple way, the, the easiest way to the promised land. That would be the coastal route. The Via Maris. Via Maris means by the way of the sea. Down along the southern part of the Mediterranean, up along the Mediterranean into Israel. That would have been the shortest direct route for them to take. But God didn't take them that way. Why wouldn't God take them the shortest, quickest, fastest, easiest way? That was, the, that was the trade route. That was where the food was. That was where the water was. That was all the provisions. That was where all the comforts were. And the road was established. This is perfect. Of course God is going to take us the easy way all the time. And we wonder, we get all messed up in our heads when we see things going on and we're like, why didn't God just take us straight there? Why didn't God take us the easy route, the simple route, the, the well-lit route, and so, so obvious route? I want to go via Maurice. That sounds so, like a wonderful vacation stop. I want to camp along the water of the Mediterranean. Even today, I would love to go to the Mediterranean, camp along the Mediterranean. But it would have been easier for the Israelites to think that the via Maurice was the way to go. But what they didn't understand and what God does understand is that there was tremendous dangers if they went to the Via Maurice. Because along that route was all the military outposts. And they, God knew if they were on that route then those military outposts could turn against his people and he knew his people couldn't handle confrontation from the enemy at this point of direct conflict. He kept them from that temptation. He kept them from dangers that they did not see down the road of life. They did not see. All they could see is the easy path. They did not see what God was keeping them from that would have probably taken them out. So God sees all things. He knows all things. He's all present. That's who our God is. And when we follow the Lord, even though we say, why are we not there yet? Dad, why aren't we there yet? Son, because we're going to have to take a detour for our safety's sake. The bridge is out ahead. Because nothing takes God by surprise. You know that. His providence, his protection of care, his plan is always the best plan. It's always the great, best way 
for his people. We may not always understand the way he chooses. We may not even agree with all of his choices that he has for us. But his way is always the right way. And so that's why we can continually have this confidence. We see it in Psalm 23.3. He restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. We can humbly pray every day. If you just look at the psalm, if you look at Psalm 25, verse 4 and 5, show me your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me. Lead me in your truths and teach me. For you are the God of my salvation, and on you I wait all day. All the day. And so in verse 18, so God led the people around by the way of the wilderness of the Red Sea. And the children of Israel went up in an orderly ranks out of the land of Egypt. Here we see the mention of the Red Sea for the very first time here. And we see that this is when you look at the map and you go, oh, the Red Sea, I want to see where they cross. Many times we go to the biggest part of the Red Sea where it's 100 miles in width. That is not where God took them across on the dry land as we will learn next, Lord willing, next week when we get in chapter 14. But God directed them westward to the finger of the, of the Red Sea, which is extended into the border areas of Egypt, which we call the modern day Gulf of Suez. And it was in that area that God was directing them. And so many times, as we should learn also from the Proverbs, chapter 3, verses 5 through 6, right? Trust in the Lord with all your heart and mind. Lean on not on your own understanding, but in all your ways acknowledge him. He shall direct what? Your paths. But what happens is we get our minds off of following the Lord, and we look at man, and we look at society, we look at how the world's doing it, and we look at some of the times the obvious and go, why are we going taking the, the Via Maurice kind of Mediterranean, let's camp by the water and luxury kind of feel? The easy road. And God says, no. It's too dangerous. We're going to go through a wilderness experience because it's going to take some time to do a work in your life to prepare you for the promised land. Father always knows best. Amen? So we remind ourselves that God knows what he's doing. He's not in a hurry. And as long as you and I follow the Lord you and I are safe and in the place of his blessings. You, if he goes right and you see him going right and you think you should go straight because that looks better, then you're out from underneath the spout of blessings from God and you're no longer protected. You're now vulnerable. Go right. When God goes right, you go right. If he goes left, you go left. But remember, his road is narrow, but it's lit. And it's what? Straight. Now, God may choose to close doors in your life. He may choose doors. Doors that you've been in going through those doors 
for five years or 10 years or 25 years. You've been going through those doors for many years. And God has closed that door. But he opens other doors, does he not? So God can close doors when he wants to and he can open new doors because we must stay alert when he does that. We see that reminder in Acts chapter 16 verses 6 through 10 and 2 Corinthians chapter 2 verses 12 and 13. We must recognize that God as we following the Lord, he will close doors and he'll open doors and that is good. Even though you don't understand it, you can't under, believe it, you, can, you must follow the Lord and trust him. And then finally, as we were wrapping here at the very end, and Moses took the bones of Joseph with him, for he had placed the children of Israel under the solemn oath, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here with you. So now we see that a reminder of 360 years prior where Joseph said, I know I've been living here. I know I raised a family here. I know we were worshiping here. We were working. Every aspect of my life has been here, and I'm about to die here. But Joseph knew one thing. This was not his home. Egypt was not the place where his bones would be buried. They would be buried in the promised land. And so he knew that, and Moses understood this, and Moses boldly by faith got his bones that would have been above land for over 400 years in that solid tomb above the land. He took him those bones and put them somehow, some way, and started carrying them with the people to go to take them to the promised land, just as God. And we see that in Genesis chapter 50, verse 25 and 26. Now remember, we know the scriptures, right? In 1 Thessalonians 4, 16, we too have a promise, our bones will be taken out of this world, out of Egypt as well. Even if you die today, your bones will not be left here. Why? Because we see in the scriptures, for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout and with a voice of an archangel and with the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. Bones and all. Eventually God is taking all of us home. We have that same promise. And so, verse 20 so they took their journey from Sekoth and camped in Etham at the edge of the wilderness. So now they're on to their next campsite stop. And when you get there, they're going to be taught another important lesson. They're going to, they've been taught they need to follow the Lord. Next week in chapter 14, we're going to see that they're going to be trusting the Lord. And that will be a lesson that they're going to learn next week. But they're following the Lord from campsite to campsite, here in Etham, which we do not know where Etham is. All we know is we see in the scripture they're at the edge of the wilderness. And God will use this wilderness experience in their life to teach them and to prepare them. And we too, in our journey in the wilderness, God will teach us. Will teach us in our life and prepare us for heaven. 
And we must understand that. In verse 21, And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead, them, lead the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light, so as to go by day and night. So God showed his presence here. The Shekinah glory, his presence, his divine presence is shown in a cloud and fire. And we see that God is coming in to protect the people. We know in the scripture, Psalm 105, 39, the pillar of cloud by day and of fire by night was also there as a sun and a shield. He spread a cloud for a covering and the fire to give light in the night. Or it says in Psalm 84, 11, for the Lord God is a sun and shield and the Lord will give grace and glory no good thing will he withhold from those who walk uprightly. So he's coming in a form of a cloud, and that cloud will be covering the Egyptian people, I'm sorry, the Israeli people, the Hebrew people, from the sun, so they do not get affected by the sun. But that cloud will also become a barrier to keep the enemy from being able to touch the people, the Hebrew people. And then at nighttime, it would then become fire, and that fire, that pillar of fire, would then light the way so the people could see in the middle of the desert everything they needed to see to be able to live and to, to be protected. They would be able to watch. But that fire would also keep and propel what? The enemy from being able to touch them. God's presence in one's life will protect you. It will provide a cloud in your life to comfort you. And it will give you a pillar of fire to refine you. But more importantly, it will warm you when you need it. God is in your, in your life. Then he is present in your life. He dwells within you as a child of God. The Holy Spirit dwells within you. They had a cloud and a pillar of of fire. And he did, verse 22, and he did not take away the pillar of cloud by day or the pillar of fire by night from before the people. So Israel could draw great assurance by the visible evidence of God's presence. Why? Because they would have doubt walking into the desert. But God stayed with them so they would not have that doubt. They could potentially rebel and say, we want to go back. But again, God's presence kept them grounded so they're not fleeing from what that God has called them to do. God wanted to, to act and to do and to follow him. And so his presence always kept them there from campsite to campsite, from place to place. And we must remember, when we are following the Lord, when we see him move, we must move. And when he stops, we must be still and wait upon the Lord to see what he's going to do next. Amen? We must not get ahead of the Lord. We must stay following the Lord and be with him. That is our surety. That is where our peace comes from. That is where we can rest. Amen?